0: Certainly one of the most intelligent, most sickly, and periodically insane philosophers in our story is Blaise Pascal. Now, he was something else. He was a homeschooled, brilliant scientist, a mathematician, and a writer of prose that even Voltaire envied, and only lived for 39 years, and that is incredible achievement, an incredible effect, and he was, I would say, until Nietzsche, he was the master of the aphorism. So, for instance, he would say, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. And I think we can all think of times where we've seen people do that and done it ourselves. He said, small minds are concerned with the extraordinary, great minds with the ordinary. Now, that's something you can really sink your teeth into that small minds are concerned with the extraordinary. Not because it's going to be stimulating by being outside the bell curve. Great minds with the ordinary ordinary behavior of matter, ordinary morals for everyday life and so on. So he was really an amazing guy, and and we'll sort of get into that. But I wanna get into his childhood, because we're starting to get to the time in philosophy where the childhood is talked about. There's information about it and I wanted to get you starting on Blaise Pascal by talking about his childhood because I think, obviously, childhood has a huge effect on all people, on all philosophers, but here we have some real information to go on. Now, Blaise was really quite a name to have at that time because Saint Blaise was fairly famous. He was a 3rd century bishop and physician who died for his faith from historical Armenia. So there was this anti-Christian emperor, Licinius, And Agricola, who was the Cappadocian governor who arrested St. Blaise, or back then when he was Blaise, demanded that he renounce his faith, deny Jesus and so on. And when the historical 3rd century blast refused, he was tortured in ways that defy imagination. He was battered to the point where people couldn't even recognize him with clubs. Iron combs were used to scrape off his flesh. And eventually he was sent to the great beyond by having his uh, throat cut. So that's quite a name to have for yourself in terms of defiance of authority and integrity to values. So that's his start. Now, he was a sickly kid, and we'll get to that in a little bit later. But a very, very high class family, a very high class family. Antoinette, his mother, well, her family and ancestors were diplomats and magistrates and justices, and she was, in fact, the daughter of a very wealthy local merchant. His father, Etienne, was in charge of civil disputes and was the governor of the town, holding a gavel and banging it in the face of uh, ordinary citizen disputes. Now, his father had come from a lot of money as well. So his father had inherited enough money that he really didn't have to work at all for the rest of his life. But he worked hard and he tried to advance his career through judicious application of, of studying and, and social climbing and, I guess, networking at the time. So he was uh, very successful for his judicial and administrative efforts and did not just rest on his laurels that way. So Pascal's family were at the very top of French society and there was of course the concept of noblesse oblige that you were born at the top you were born smart you were born competent you were born well educated you had access to money and to power and to politics and the top of the clergy and so on so there was a great sense of look we're just kind of lucky in a way we've been put here by god we have all of these extra skills we should use it to help the underdog we should use it to help the less fortunate and there was definitely that sense of what happened in his family and among that entire social class But at the same time, there was a reverence for the secular authorities. There was a reverence for the state, uh, the king, because, of course, most of their money and privilege and power came from the state, so they would use it to try and benefit the poor while retaining an intense allegiance to the state that gave them most of the resources and privileges that they enjoyed. So Blaise was born fairly sickly, and then around the age of somewhere between one and two, he got seriously, mortally, on the brink of death, ill. It was uh, just awful, of course, as you can imagine, for the parents. Blaise never had much of an appetite as a baby. He stopped breastfeeding and began to resist breastfeeding and, of course, dropped weight, as you can imagine. Even though he was so young at the baby fat stage, his ribs could be seen as he lost his weight. And he also got this crazy, was it hydrophobia, this irrational fear of water. So even water in a glass, water anywhere, he would squirm and fuss wildly, even just seeing it. And also, and I don't know really what to make of this, we probably will never know, Blaise at this age had total raging tantrum meltdowns whenever both parents were in the same room. So if his mother was there, not too bad. If his father was there, not too bad. When he saw them both together, like crazy meltdown rages. And he had this terrible swollen abdomen. His mother couldn't even hold him because he would just cry out in, in, in horrifying pain whenever this, uh, this happened. Doctors, of course, back then were fairly useless and nobody could figure out what was wrong with him. So he was untreated for, uh, I, guess, I guess, about a year. And then what happened was, and some people say, oh, it was the neighbors who started this rumor, but somehow the rumor got started is that it was, uh, it was the work of a witch. It was the work of... It had to be supernatural. It had to be the work of a witch, of the devil who put a curse on this boy. Now, of course, the devil being somewhat immaterial, you need to have it manifested in a physical form. So people, again, for reasons generally unknown, there was a former housekeeper, and the rumors started to fasten upon her as the evil witch who had cursed the poor child. Now, according to biographers who aren't exactly neutral, Marguerite Perrier was Pascal's niece, Blaise's niece. So, she's not going to talk about any particular family demons. So, uh, Blaise's father, Etienne, the story goes, this is nonsense. Of course, it's not this former housekeeper. She's not a witch, or if she is, she's got nothing to do with this. And then, of course, as his son's illness ground on and the son neither died nor improved, the, you can imagine it's like pulling a rubber band. The tension just gets greater and greater and eventually just snapped. And then he succumbed to paranoia and to social programming and began to approach this witch and demand what she had to know, what she had done to poor Blaise. So, the former housekeeper gets summoned to the house and, of course, she says, no, I'm not a witch. I didn't curse your baby. And Etienne, remember, is a magistrate, right? He, he's a judge. So he says, stop lying. I know that you put a witchy curse on my son. And I will send you straight to the gallows. If you don't tell me the truth, I will inflict the death penalty on you right away. And, of course, faced with murder at the hands of Blaise Pascal's father, Etienne, the housekeeper fell to her knees and sobbed and wept and said that she would confess the secrets of what she had done. So this is the guy's father, right? Threatening murder to force a confession out of a witch in order to deal with his own anxiety regarding his son's ill health. I mean, this is kind of crazy stuff, right? So the housekeeper says, look, I'll, I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you what happened, okay? I'm not getting paid much. I've got crazy chores. I've got to refill the pantry. Uh, I, I, I've got to tidy up everywhere all the time. I've got to uh, fluff up the firewood. I've got to start the fires. I've got to keep everything warm and comfortable and happy. Plus, I've got this infant to take care of who's constantly screaming and crying and in constant pain. And I'm somehow responsible for making him better. And I can't make him better. So... I just, I, 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 I snapped one day. I put a death spell on the child. I put a death spell on the child. How do we remove it? We can imagine Etienne shouting. says, look, the spell once created, the death spell. You can only take it out of Les by putting it into another creature. So Etienne's like, aha, I knew it. Uh, now I have the truth and we have a solution to my son's illness so what do they do well they they grab two of the family's kittens and give them to the witch and i guess she goes through the pretense of being a witch and she mutters and 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 casts spells and and then she goes to the top floor of the manor and flings the cats uh, out the windows and I suppose that means she transferred the death curse from Blaise Pascal to the kittens and killed the kittens. But there was more. The theater of the superstitious absurd must continue. So then she says, okay, uh, I need to go to the garden. I need to get herbs and so on. And I'm going to grind them into a thick paste or potion. And then she took that and she smeared it gently on Blaise Pascal's distended belly. And then the witch said, it's not enough, I need more. And she went to go and get more herbs for a second paste. And then Blaise Pascal went through a terrible shuddering convulsion and just slipped into a a deep coma. And his skin got so cold and his breath got so shallow that even the doctor who was desperately called thought that the future philosopher had died. After a while, the housekeeper returns, and Etienne assaults her. The moment she walks into the room, he falls upon her and beats her half to death. And everyone, of course, is shocked and stunned. And the witch, fearing for her life with this brutal assault, the housekeeper says, no, 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 look, look, he's not dead. This is how the spell is resolved. He goes into a deep slumber, and the spell is resolved. You'll have to be patient. Three weeks, the baby is in this state. And then his eyes flutter open, and he recovers to a large degree. Now, not recovers all the way, because... Over the course of his whole life, he was frail. His health was tremulous. And as one biographer pointed out, quote, from the age of 18, Blaise never passed a day without pain. Of course, in the absence of knowledge, people panic and turn to superstition, and then superstition prevents the pursuit of knowledge. Superstition is a false answer as to the cause and effect of this world, so people panic And they say, well, the doctors can't help him. We don't know what's wrong. We're just going to pretend somebody cast a spell on him, and that relieves their own anxiety. Of course, this is all happening in the modern world as well in various ways that we've talked about in the show. And what happens then is that when there's a desperate demand for superstition, for false theories, then people start to profit from false theories. They start to charge people for superstitious remedies to superstitious, quote, problems. And then you get a marketplace of superstition. You know, removing curses, uh, removing uh, voodoo, uh, demonic expulsions and so on. You get, or, or, or I mean, you can look at some of these sort of crystal nonsense that goes on in the modern world. So once you get an economy of desperation, then true knowledge, which reduces that desperation, is viciously attacked by all the people profiting from that desperation. Desperation becomes a kind of crop that they must plant and harvest. And, of course, we can see this with the recent stuff about the, the COVID and so on, that the, when you sow panic, fear, and desperation, it becomes very easy to profit uh, from it. And then those who oppose the panic, fear, and desperation, or who seek more reasonable paths, uh, are attacked because they stand between, well, people and the money that they uh, obviously want. I mean, what was Blaise Pascal afflicted with? Most likely gastrointestinal tuberculosis. Could be extreme IBS, maybe migraines, maybe fibromyalgia. Could be any number of things, of course, we don't know. But we know that it wasn't a witch and a death spell. So this poor child, Blaise, between one and two, has this horrendous illness of, of infinite pain. And when he had just turned three, he lost his mother some illness which history has not recorded, he lost his mother. And his father was devastated and actually never took another bride. It was very common, of course. It wasn't super common for women to die in childbirth, but of course they did at a much higher rate than they do now, of course. The tradition was that a man would go through a period of mourning and then he would get a new bride. In particular, a stepmother for his children, because... You needed a mother back then, so but he never did. He never did remarry. What he did, this is November 1631. He did sell off his post. He was the second president of the Cours d'Aide, and for this he got, give or take, roughly about a million dollars U.S. in sort of current purchasing power. Maybe a little more. It was the sum was six. 65,665 livres, so about a million, maybe 1.1 million. Depends on where inflation goes uh, by the time I finish recording this. And he relocated to Paris. And what he did was he took this million dollars and he invested it in a government bond. And that gave them a huge yearly income, which allowed them to live in the capital in Paris in, in great luxury. Now, remember, of course, that Blaise Pascal's mother was brilliant. His father was a jurist and a polymath. He was a linguist who was fantastic at classical French and Greek and Latin. He was a lettered mathematician. He worked in various sciences and was a good philosopher overall in, in, you know, relative to the standards of the time. And what he did with Pascal, with Blaise, was very interesting. So normally at this level of social elitism, you would put your kids in these exclusive schools, often boarding schools, and then they would go into universities and so on. But Etienne said, no, look, my, my son is far too sickly to make it in a school with a regular schedule. So he homeschooled. And he homeschooled in a fairly random fashion. Of course, Etienne was very busy, had a very detailed and extravagant career. And so it was kind of random when he would instruct a bless He gave him general geography, some history, philosophy, and he did Bible classes, he did law classes. And although the typical instruction curricula of the time was to make sure that kids would learn Latin and Greek and other ang- languages really early, uh, this is particularly true for the Jesuits, Etienne said, no, 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 until at least after his 12th birthday, we're not going to give him languages. And the other thing that was really wild was mathematics was all the rage at the time for reasons of science, for reasons of logic, for reasons of it was an exercise in reason that you couldn't really get in trouble for. Right? Exercises in moral reason, in moral universality, in moral logic, well, those will get you in trouble. I can tell you that. (laughs) Those will get you in trouble. But mathematical reasoning is a great way to exercise the brain without running into particular controversies. And of course, at the time, and there's still a thread of this in Western theology even now, God was considered to be the ultimate mathematician, and so to study mathematics was to study the mind of God. There was a religious, faith-based theological element to the study of mathematics, but Etienne said with regards to Blaise, nope, not going to do it. I'm going to hold off. I'll tell you what's going to happen. Mathematics is so fascinating that he's, he starts diving into mathematics. It's going to be to the exclusion of everything else that he could possibly study. He's going to become monomaniacal. And again, he knew his son. He's going to become monomaniacal. He's going to pursue mathematics. It's going to exclude everything else. So we have to wait until he's older. And so until the age of 15, maybe even 16, there was no study of mathematics for Blaise Pascal, who became an extraordinarily famous mathematician. Now, Blaise was one of the YYY kids, which is, why do the sun and the moon move the way that they do? Why do the stars move the way that they do? How is it possible that a single tiny flame can heat up an entire pot of soup? How does that possibly work? And of course, adults would answer his questions, and then after a while adults are busy, have things to do, and the adults would stop asking his questions, answering his questions, at which point Blaise would design his own physical experiments to get the answers that he wanted. Now, Blaise's fascination with science was, you know, considered great by his father. This was the post Baconian age of the scientific revolution, but at the same time, Etienne had a principle. His father had a principle. That he worked by, where he said, Look, matters of faith should not be treated as matters of reason, and matters of reason should not be treated as matters of faith. There is a dichotomy between the two. Reason is for the world, faith is for God and his works, and if you try to overlap the two, it will not work, and you will also get in trouble. And Bless accepted this and followed these principles to keep faith and reason separate over the course of his life. So to get a sense of how brilliant and driven Blaise Pascal was, again, remember, he's in this rather shattered and sickly body, but just a ravaging mind. By the age of 10, he had completed dozens and dozens of scientific experiments. And a year later, again, homeschooled rather indifferently, but largely self-educated, at the age of 11, he wrote a pretty detailed treatise regarding the sounds of vibrating bodies. Again, nobody asked him to do this. Nobody told him to do this. This relentless curiosity and drive. But, of course, it's tough to make much progress in science without a knowledge of mathematics. So Blaise, of course, knew about mathematics and was consistently and constantly badgering his father for more information. And then, one day, Etienne said, in general, mathematical science provided the means to provide accurate figures to determine the proportions that prevail among them. And that's it. That's all he would say. But of course, you've got a relentless, curious, brain-dot-glowing-eaten Pac-Man of a mind on your hands. And so what Bless did was he began to steal or borrow books of mathematics from his father's library now he would take books from other areas and fill them in so that they the gap tooth on the bookshelf would not be evident but he would steal i assume read under the light of his blankets <laughs> perhaps with a candle in order to get his knowledge of mathematics which his father was denying to him also his father didn't just think it would be too fascinating but he also thought look mathematics is so brilliant and so subtle that it's going to be wasted on a kid he's going to get turned off math Wait till he's older when he can really appreciate the beauty of mathematics. Now, this turned into a battle of forbidden fruit between Etienne and his son Blaise. So, Etienne eventually figured out that Blaise was sneaking books from his library and uh, gave him a severe talking to, I'm sure maybe beat him, I don't know, and locked up all of his mathematics books. And it got to the point where, when Etienne, the dad, had friends over and they would be discussing mathematics, if he heard that Blaise was around, he would tell everyone to stop talking to keep this knowledge away from from his son. It's really quite wild. So Blaise hid a hunk of charcoal under his pillow and would draw along the walls of his bedroom, along the walls of his playroom, to try and figure out geometrical shapes, their relationships, and so on. And he didn't even know the formal names for these shapes, so he would make up his own. He would scrub away all of the evidence before he was caught, and it really was, I guess, like... Uh, kids of my age with a playboy, he was with geometrical relationships and mathematical shapes. Eventually, of course, as the result of inevitable probabilities, which Blaise Pascal would later examine, he was caught. He was caught literally with papers in his hands, with the charcoal, and his father's reaction, of course, was rage at having been disobeyed. And he grabbed the papers from his son's trembling hand and then looked at them. This is a little kid, right? And this little kid had figured out all on his own with no instruction that the sum of a triangle's angles is equivalent to two right angles. And bless is looking up at his dad like, oh, I'm going to get it now. And what happened was his father, distracted by the brilliance, of his son's self-taught mathematics and geometry, just turned and stumbled half-dazed out of Blaise's bedroom and went straight to somebody he used to study with, a local mathematician named Jacques de And he comes stumbling into this guy's room, and his friend is like, well, what's the matter? And Etienne... Thrusts all of Pascal's papers into his friend's hand, and he was weeping. And he said, "I do not weep from affliction, but from joy. You know the pains I have gone to keep my son from the knowledge of geometry. Have a look what he has done." La Pallier replied, after looking at the papers, "If such is true, different." then you must water this interest, nurture it, feed it, and encourage it. The Lord makes no mistakes, and this gift is no exception. What a moment, what a moment in the history of thought. The very next morning, Blaise was given by his father a copy of Euclid's elements, and then boom, like he was off to the races. Now, mathematics was a social topic at the time. You know the way people until more recently when the divides got too extreme, people would get together and talk and argue politics or talk and argue economics or talk and argue, I don't know, art and and movies and things like that. Back then it was mathematics, and I actually wrote a scene similar to this but in the realm of physics and agriculture in my novel Just Poor. You can get that for free at justpoornovel.com because I really wanted to point out how the intellectual life was not just confined to the upper classes, but went all throughout society, that there were rural clubs that got together to discuss physics and optics and geometry and mathematics. And so you would go to the bar and you would, there'd be some new published treatise on geometry or a- abstract mathematics, and you would go and, and review this and argue about it with your friends. This was like a social event for a lot of people. When Blaise was 13, this was about the fall of 1636. Etienne would invite his son to underground meetings, revered mathematicians and scientists, to gatherings, to lectures, to arguments, to debates, and this just fed the young genius's mind like nothing else. By the time Pascal was 16, he was publishing papers. One called A Treatise on Conic Sections was truly stunning to the audience He presented it to, and in a sort of interesting crossover, Descartes was truly awed by the product of the 16-year-old Blaise Pascal. So all is going well in its own way, and then, boom, 1638. Now, do you remember that Etienne, Blaise's father, had taken his million dollars invested it into government bonds. Well, then Cardinal Richelieu decided to default on the bonds because there was this 30 Years' war. They had to keep the government in gold. And what happened was the million dollars, which was, of course, producing a fairly vast annuity, dropped to about $111,000. So, yeah, a 90% drop in the value, and this was was pretty rough. Now, what happened was Etienne, who was very skilled, uh, a public orator, and well-versed in the arts of politics, he organized a huge protest against this robbery, this predation. And this was fairly successful, and the government took a real blow in its reputation, and... Of course, what happened was there was blowback. There was blowback. And the blowback was so extreme that Etienne had to flee Paris. We assume one step ahead of arrest for some trumped-up charge. So early 1639, Etienne had to flee, and he left his son and his other children in the care of a woman named Madame saint And this was a bit odd. This was a bit odd. So this woman ran a famous salon for intellectuals, the Algonquin Round Table of its time, but uh, she was also a former prostitute, and uh, she ended up having to flee Paris as well. And then, as so often happens in life, disaster turned to the opposite of disaster. And there's a couple of reasons for this, which is somewhat under debate. But basically what happened was Etienne had fled Paris because he had accused Richelieu of corruption and theft, basically, in defaulting on the government bonds. And then he was recalled, he was brought back by Richelieu. Now, some people say, well, the Cardinal had finally figured out that he couldn't really run the government without Etienne. But the other, and I assume somewhat complimentary. Explanation is is a little creepy. So, after Etienne is banished, Cardinal Richelieu goes to see a play. Now, in the play is a beautiful, talented, charismatic woman with extraordinary stage presence. He is just captivated by her, perhaps half-falls in love with her, and demands to see her after the play. This girl is 17 years old. She is completely captivated and captured Cardinal Richelieu's heart. And he finds out that this beautiful, talented, charismatic young actress who's very polite and well-mannered when she is introduced to him is actually Etienne's daughter, Blaise Pascal's sister. And then just a few days later, despite the fact that there's an outstanding warrant on her father's arrest, Richelieu honors his attachment to this child and grants Etienne a formal pardon just a few days later. Now, although it's a completely fascinating story, I want to make sure we get to the philosophy itself. Uh, What happened was Etienne was appointed as a tax collector in a place called Rouen. It was a very terrible city compared to the beautiful city of lights of, of Paris and it was uh, a very depressed place. The, the, the citizens, like most citizens in France, were severely overtaxed. Uh, there were droughts and, and pests and pestilence and, and illness. Uh, the Black Plague uh, hit, hit there at the time and it was just wretched and horrible. There was a crime and, and lots of strikes. It was just a terrible place to go, and Etienne was in charge of trying to find some way to calm the mob that was roiling and rebelling against their their tax burdens. And what's wild is so you of course had to do all the math by hand, and when you're trying to be a tax collector, not the most honorable position on the known in the known universe, but you have of course a massive amount of calculations to do. So Blaise Pascal would watch his father working all night, going half blind, doing this Math, doing this crazy math stuff, right? And so he created, as I'm sure you're aware, Blaise Pascal created the first automatic calculator. Well, sorry, not the very first. The first calculating machine, there was a guy named Wilhelm Schickard. This was 1623. But this was the first fully functional mechanical calculator. And it was called the Pascaline because uh, yeah, he's, he's okay at the marketing and so on. So it is pretty wild, and there's still a bunch of them around today, uh, and and you can actually see them, and you can see them in operation. Now, uh, I don't know, my relationship to perfectionism is very complicated, so I won't dig into my own thing, but I will say that Blaise Pascal, complete perfectionist, he actually had more than 50 prototypes, 50 bottles, and this was hard to get, hard to make hard to requisition the parts and have them built properly and so on. But he had more than 50 models of this thing, and he ended up getting a, a patent on it, and he delivered some to nobility, and he sold some, but they were just so crazy expensive that he could never really make a commercial aspect of it. And there are only seven left in the modern world, but they are still there, some of them in private collections, some of them in public collections. You can actually see them. So even before his father relocated to Rouen... Pascal had blinding migraines and horrifying stomach pains and lower abdomen pains. Not long after his 23rd birthday, he got uh, shakes, convulsions, perhaps a fee- epilepsy or something like that, and he couldn't feed himself. He couldn't dress himself, and this was, of course, pretty brutal. After a while, he couldn't even eat any solid food. He had to be fed by a dropper, and uh, it was whether this was exaggerated by his biographers in order to increase the drama of his life um, or not, well, of course, we'll never know, but it it was pretty rough for him as it was for most of his life with his just crippling health. And there's, I mean, there's so much fascinating stuff here about Pascal's father breaking his leg and the bone setters being Jansenists and the family conversion. There is Pascal betraying a um, intellectual to the church. There's a whole bunch of stuff here, which we'll perhaps can talk about another time, but I want to get on to some important things that he gave in the realm of mathematics. Probabilities was a big thing. So Pierre de Fermat, Fermat's last theorem guy, Pascal partnered with him, and they did research on the mathematical science behind gambling addictions and sort of various other social problems, and they together fathered the mathematical concept of probabilities. He also developed kind of a prototype of the roulette wheel. He was trying to make a perpetual motion machine, got the roulette wheel and so on, and, and kind of half invented the game. And this probability thing is just wild. Probability is one of the greatest advancements in the free market that has ever, ever, ever been achieved. And so probabilities, course we all know them from life insurance tables where you pay based upon your height, your weight, your smoking, your whatever, right? But probabilities was just astounding probabilities is one of the things that helped drive the creation of the middle class which is the ballast and political weight behind the expansions of the free market and the restrictions on restrictions of trade so probabilities allow people to take risks without maximum capital right so if if you have a ship and it sails around the cape of good hope and goes and does some trading somewhere Now, if you lose that ship, you lose everything, right, prior to insurance, right? You can't have insurance without probabilities. So you had to be wealthy enough to weather the loss of a whole ship. So you had to be super wealthy. And, of course, the super wealthy were generally the aristocrats. And the aristocrats wanted, in the sort of uh, um, mercantilist style of trading, the very wealthy, those politically well-connected, those in the aristocracy, they wanted... Solo access to developing markets, think sort of the East India Company, right? so they would they would want the government to say, only you can trade this spice or these dyes or whatever it was that they were getting from these these other countries. And so when you require a huge amount of wealth, which meant historical aristocratic wealth, when you needed a huge amount of wealth in order to trade, because the losses were staggering, could could be, then only the very wealthiest, the historical nobles, could afford it and because they had so much, such great connections to the state and such singular and solo connections to the state, they could get these mercantilist solo access writs or laws which said that only you can trade this particular kind of thing. Now, when you get the invention of probabilities, you start to get the invention of insurance. Now, when you have insurance, you don't have to put up the full cost if the ship is lost. Let's say that the ship has a 10% chance of being lost. Then you can get the entire value of the ship back by putting up only, say, 12% of the value of the ship for the sake of insurance, 10% for the loss, 2% for the profit of the insurance company. Now, this means that you don't need as much money to engage in entrepreneurial actions where there's significant risk involved. This means that you get a much more diluted set of entrepreneurs than the royalty and the very wealthy aristocrats and so on. And because it's diluted, they're all in competition. They don't want anybody else to get single access to a market. So you start to get free trade in the international sphere as the result, as the result of the development of probabilities. It's truly wild how math can just incredibly advance the human condition. And in particular, of course, human liberties. So Pascal went through a fairly worldly phase for a couple of years, from the late 1640s to about 1654. He dressed in the finest clothes, then he had a four-horse-drawn carriage and sort of rolled around uh, looking down his nose at people to some degree. And listen, I don't have any particular issue. The guy was in constant suffering over the course of his life. He he grabs a little bit of worldly pleasure. That's totally fine with me. He was never much of a drinker, never much of a womanizer, but he had some sort of vanity around spending his, his father's money. So November the 23rd, 1654, he had a vision, an out-of-body experience, maybe a form of brain epilepsy, and these have been known to produce religious visions in people. So what happened? He goes back to his bedroom, bolts his door shut, and opens his father's copy of the Bible. He did this every night. And just leads through the pages, he settles on the 17th chapter of the book of John, verses 1 to 3. And then he feels a numbness that starts from within him. Now, again, if he's in constant pain, numbness would be a huge relief. Hands trembling, he drops the book. He tries to get up, he fails. He falls back, his eyes roll all the way around to the back of his head. For two hours. He is trapped in terrifying, macabre visions that are specifically theological. He sees jets of flame flying across, the skies weeping with rain. He sees soldiers with demonic penumbra whipping and beating Jesus, the Son of God. He sees Christ hanging from the cross. He sees rivers of blood cascading down the withering body of Jesus. Countless more of these visions thunder through his brain. And then he just collapses on his desk. Half past midnight. Now, that's one side of the story. The other side says, oh, another reason for this conversion Intensity is the story that a Pascal and his friends were crossing a bridge over a river and his horses got spooked by something and threw themselves off the bridge and his carriage hung, swinging and creaking on the edge of the bridge, but he was able to escape what would have been probably death for him. He considers this a warning to forego his worldly ways. He writes a note to himself, either it's the visions or the bridge. He writes a note to address address to himself, which he keeps secret. He sews it into his coat, keeps it completely secret. It is only after his death, a year or two after his death, a servant happens to find this note. And the note is this. From about half past ten at night to about half an hour after midnight. Fire. God of Abraham. God of Isaac. God of Jacob. Not of philosophers and scholars. Certitude. Heartfelt joy. Peace. God of Jesus Christ. God of Jesus Christ. The world. Forgotten. Everything except God. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I will not forget thy word. Amen. Now, the O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, is from John seventeen twenty-five, and Psalms... 11, 19, 16 is, I will not forget thy word. Amen. And boom, that was it. He was done. He retired from mathematics, from scientific experimentation and documentation. He retired from writing about any of these subjects. He dissolved all of his scientific collaborations, ended all of his ongoing projects. He threw aside his plans to publish a short treatise he'd just completed on vacuums. And the treatise was actually only published years after he died. And that was it. Uh, He changed his diet to more simple food. He got rid of all of his fancy clothing and everything that was silk from his wardrobe. He just completely changed his life. And he said that the science and math, and this is from a friend of his, he said that, quote, the vanity and nothingness of all these types of knowledge, the worldly knowledge that he had acquired such disgust for them that he could hardly tolerate intelligent people devoting their time to them and speaking seriously about them. By all reports, Pascal, this is at the age of 31, began to beat himself. It's called self-flagellation mortification of the flesh. He whipped himself with belts studded with rusty nails. Some reports are that he did this to suppress his homosexual lusts. Not much evidence that that's true, but he was certainly punishing himself for his worldly sins either way. He abandoned math, he abandoned science, he abandoned philosophy, he abandoned All of that, and in the final years of his life, he wrote religious literature. And this is such such the staggering nature of his genius, that when he turned to religious literature, he wrote some of the greatest prose ever put down in French. He wrote Provincial Letters. This is a satirical publication written, or at least published in 1657, that was criticizing the Jesuits in the Catholic Church. And it was so beautifully written that many of the writers felt it was the best written book in French. Later on, Voltaire, no slouch at prose himself, said if there's one book he wished he had written, it was Provincial Letters by Pascal. Just staggering that he's like, oh, you know, one day I'm just going to become a theologian. And he wrote some of the greatest works in theology and theological criticism ever penned in the French language or arguably any other language. The things that he could have done in science and mathematics if he'd kept there, well, we'll never know, but I'm sure they would have been truly spectacular. And then he worked on a book tentatively titled Apologie de la Réligion Chrétienne. And these were his thoughts on miracles and other aspects of theology, and he did not finish the book. And there's a bunch of unfinished sections. We don't even know the organization or sequence of them. And then after he died, they were released under the title Pensées, which, of course, is thoughts. And it's well worth reading. To get a window into the brilliance of a mind, several centuries' dust, it's the most amazing one of the most amazing books, and I remember reading it when I was quite young and being just struck by the depth and power of his pen. And, of course, I can't read it very well in the original French, but it's definitely something worth reading, of course. So, 1662, his illness, now generally accepted to be tuberculosis, got worse. August 18th, his doctor said, Look, there's, and we all get this conversation, if we're lucky, right? We don't get hit by a bus. We all get this conversation with the doctors or from the doctors at some point, And I write about this in my novel, The Future. There's nothing more we can do other than make you comfortable. And so that afternoon, he got a local clergyman to come by and got the sacrament of extreme unction, the anointing of the sick. 1 a.m. the following morning, when he was 39 years old, he died. Pascal's final breath, his final words Well, may God never abandon me. So, of course, Pascal is most famous for Pascal's wager. And this goes all the way back to Etienne saying that matters of theology are not matters of reason, and matters of reason are not matters of theology. But his fascination with mathematics and his fascination with gambling addictions and probabilities undoubtedly caused him to generate the famous wager. Quote, If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then, without hesitation, that he, God, exists. Pascal said, look, there's there's no rational basis to believe or disavow the Christian faith. It's a matter of theology. It's not susceptible to the penetration of reason. So should we believe or not? And he says, look, if you believe, then you go to heaven. If you don't believe, you go to hell. So let's just look at the probabilities and the cost-benefit analysis of this. If you believe in God, then you read the Bible, you go to church. It's a relatively minor inconvenience. If God does not exist and you believe in God, you've gotten up early, you've learned some hymns, you've got some good moral instruction, you've talked ideals, and virtues. It's not been a huge negative in your life. Nobody's asking you to saw your own arm off. I'm paraphrasing here a little, of course. So, it's not a big negative in your life. Even if God doesn't exist, you could view it as a positive. At least you're talking about ideas and virtues, living deeply and thoughtfully. But even if we say, you like to sleep late on Sundays, you've got to get up early, you've got to put on uncomfortable clothes, you've got to go to church. Okay, it's a relatively minor inconvenience. So, if you believe in God, but God doesn't exist, and your atoms disperse when you die, and your consciousness dies with you, what have you lost? A little inconvenience. Okay, so that's the worst-case scenario. If you act as if God exists, but God doesn't exist, you've not really lost much of anything. But if God does exist, and you act as if God exists, and you believe in God, then you gain Heaven the greatest conceivable benefit that any consciousness could possibly attain. It is eternal bliss. So, the the upside of believing in God is infinitely greater than the downside of believing in God if God does not exist, right? Now, let's look at the other side. Let's say that you live not believing in God and there is no God. Okay? You gain some additional worldly pleasures, probably, right? And you can sleep in on sundays so there's some there's some benefit let's say there's some benefit ah but if you don't believe in god but there is a god you go to hell for eternity so just imagine you're placing a bet if you bet that god does not exist the best you can get is a small increase in worldly pleasures But if God does exist, you go to hell. So minor inconvenience, if you believe in God, and God does not exist, minor inconvenience, if you believe in God and God does exist, eternal bliss in heaven. You can't beat that for odds. Of course you should believe in God. Even if you have no rational proof, which we'll accept that there is no rational proof, you must do it. Because you can't possibly get anything better than that. Now, of course, there are a number of objections to this argument, and we'll go through some of the more common ones and then mine, I suppose. So you can't just will yourself to believe in something because you're bullied or bribed, right? So if somebody were to say, I will give you a million dollars if you believe that the world is flat, Okay, then you'll say, yeah, the world is flat. I want that million dollars. But do you actually believe it? Or are you just saying that to get the million dollars? Can you actually will yourself to believe something based upon not a vision, not a certitude of truth that obviously Pascal had when he had his conversion experiences? But can you just will yourself to believe something because you're bribed or threatened? Or if somebody says, I'm going to kill your family if you don't believe that the world is flat, then you will say, yes, I believe that the world is flat. Do you actually believe it, or are you simply responding to the threat? Now, of course, Pascal is easily intelligent enough to be aware of this, and he just says, look, you act like you believe, and then it will become true that you believe, and, you know, if you don't want to go to the gym, but you keep forcing yourself to go to the gym, at some point, you'll probably start to enjoy going to the gym because you're getting stronger, and, right, so you just act the belief. So, But you can't just will yourself to believe something based upon a bribe or a threat. I would also argue that the ratios are probably way off. So he says, look, if you act as if there's a God, but there isn't a God, it's a minor inconvenience. Well, it may be more than a minor inconvenience. If you're drafted into a religious war, then that's more than a minor inconvenience. If you happen to miss some important piece of doctrine or you happen to have a particular belief that's different from the theology of those in power, you could get captured and interrogated and tortured and killed as we know from Bless Pascal's namesake, St. Bless from the third century, who was tortured and mutilated and had his skin raked off with iron combs and put out of his misery by having his throat cut. Uh, yeah, there can be some pretty considerable negatives. Then you've been tortured and killed for a God that does not exist. So just saying, well, it's a bit of getting up early and, and some minor inconveniences and so on, it can actually be a lot more than a minor inconvenience or two for a belief in a God that does not exist. On the other side of the same equation, if you believe that God exists and God does not exist, and you spend your life terrified of going to hell, then you spend your life in significant mental agony, fear, paranoia, desperate devotion to a cause that doesn't exist, and your life is thereby ruined in pursuit, away from a terrible torture that does not actually exist. Uh, That would be to live in a state of constant paranoia, and degradation of any possibility of happiness for the sake of something that does not exist. So he's really sacking the deck here by saying, well, if you believe in there is no God, it's, you know, minor inconvenience. It's like, no, 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 it can be more than a minor inconvenience. And another objection would be, is God going to be much impressed if you simply work the arts and decide to believe in him because you're afraid of hell and want to get to heaven and you've tried to figure out the mathematical probabilities of the pluses and minuses of a particular Hypothesis, In other words, if you simply have gambled that God exists and it's a sensible and productive gamble, even if we accept all of the premises of Pascal, would God say you're truly a good person if you're simply playing the odds and hedging your bets? I'm not sure that he would. I can't plumb the mind of the infinite, but I'm pretty sure that God would rather you follow his virtues and his teachings and his morals because you love virtue, love God, and love Jesus, rather than, well, you know, there's more of an upside to, than a downside to this, so that seems kind of mercenary. You know, like, you'll fight for one army, you're totally loyal to one army, oh, that other army's offering more pay, okay, you'll switch sides. It's like, there's not any particular virtue there if you're just crunching the numbers and coming up with a path forward. But to me, the argument against Pascal's wager and I don't know if other people have come up with this, I'm sure they have, but this was the one that I generated at the time, was to say this, there's no moral differentiation to the bribe-threaten mechanic of belief. In other words, what could not be made acceptable by this level of punishment and reward? In other words, if you create infinite hell for disagreeing with someone, and you create infinite bliss for agreeing with them, then wouldn't you agree or disagree with anything they said? What moral or immoral or heinous or evil proposition would not be passed according to that metric? Someone could come up with the most evil thing that you think of and then say, ah, yes, but if you believe this evil thing and you act as if this evil thing were true, then you will gain infinite bliss. And if you don't accept this evil thing, then you will get infinite torture and punishment, eternal infinite torture and punishment. You could use this to get people to believe in astrology. Well, if you believe in astrology, you'll get eternal bliss, and if you are skeptical of astrology, you will get eternal punishment, torture, uh, uh, Reiki, crystal energy energy healing, uh, collectivism, uh, Satanism, <laughs> whatever. You could come up with anything that anyone would believe if you crank up, the punishment and reward metric high enough, there's no particular belief that could outlast that particular calculation or that metric. So I don't like it. And of course, if people do believe, the fundamental thing is the belief in eternal reward or eternal punishment. So if you get people to believe in eternal reward or eternal punishment after death, that's the key. Because then you can plug in anything you want And because of the eternal punishment and eternal reward, everything that is mortal is infinitesimally small relative to eternity. So every conceivable calculation of what happens in this life would vanish to essentially nothing in the face of eternity. And therefore, when you have the eternal levers, right? Give me a lever big enough and I can move the world. That was Archimedes, right? If you have a big enough lever of infinite pleasure and infinite punishment, of heaven and of hell, you can use that lever to change anyone's thoughts in the tiny, infinitely small slice of mortality, of mortal life, of mortal existence. Those giant levers can move anyone to any position whatsoever. Well, if you don't believe in baptism of a baby, then you go to hell. But if you do believe in it, you go to heaven. Ah, but if you don't believe in adult baptism because you have to choose your faith. If you don't believe in adult baptism, you go to hell. But if you do believe in it, then you go to heaven. You can use these giant levers for any belief to ensure conformity and compliance. And I would imagine that this is largely because Pascal was raised by a man who threatened to murder a woman for not confessing to be a witch and then beat her half to death when he thought she had failed to remove the death curse from, bless Pascal. He was raised by a man who regularly inflicted hell. This is a man who threatened to murder a woman for failing to confess, to casting an imaginary spell on his sickly son. Can you imagine what he was like as a tax collector? Can you imagine how many people he threatened and punished, actually punished, for disobeying him? If you want to see... The emotional, childhood, psychological roots of Pascal's wager. Look at his monster of a father. And there we see that most people are not actually performing philosophy in the abstract, but are simply failing to process childhood trauma and calling it an abstraction.